Hamlet Podcast, episode 65. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanrity. We are entering the home stretch now, with less than 10 episodes left before we reach the end of our journey through the play together. The remaining scenes are all very short, increasing the tension as we alternate between scenes with Macbeth and scenes with Macduff and Malcolm until. As you might guess, Shakespeare brings the two opposing forces face to face. But for now, we're back to Malcolm's side. The scene, Act 5, Scene 4, begins with a stage direction calling for drum and colours. Now, the drum is a fairly standard thing, indicating military activity and troops marching. The colours, however, give us another potential instance of Shakespeare flattering his patron, King James of Scotland and of England. Malcolm, remember, has come back to Scotland with a large cohort of English soldiers. Presumably, therefore, the colours, or flags, that they are bearing would be both English and Scottish. The first version of the Union Jack, the British flag that combined the Scottish and English ones, was created would you believe, in 1606, the same year as this play. So there might well have been a sly opportunity for Shakespeare to hint at this newly forged marker of British identity in his staging of a combined Scottish and English army on this stage, not least since they are uniting to fight against the killer of James's pseudo-historical ancestor, Banquo. As the drum and colours appear, Malcolm, Macduff, Menteith, Caithness, Angus, possibly Lennox, Ross and any other soldiers available all enter together. They are accompanied by Seward, whose name we've mentioned a few times earlier in the play. He has provided 10,000 men to the cause. He's often referred to as Old Seward because his son, also a Seward, is also present. Seward is Malcolm's uncle, too, and so Seward the Younger is his cousin. And Malcolm begins the scene, saying, Cousins, I hope the days are near at hand that chambers will be safe. Cousins doesn't literally have to mean those of his bloodline, although there are some with him. It's a term of familiarity, as he addresses these men who have all chosen to fight on his side. Malcolm's comment is quite bracing. He hopes that the day will soon dawn where bedrooms, chambers, will be safe. Lest we've forgotten, his father was murdered as he slept in Macbeth's castle. The only way to ensure that bedrooms or chambers are safe, therefore, is to eliminate the murderer. He's not quite accusing Macbeth directly, but it's a clever way to remind everyone of his father's death. Menteith replies, assuring Malcolm, We doubted nothing. They agree that the day is coming soon. Next up, Seward asks, What wood is this before us? At this point, everyone in the audience could probably answer, and it's again Menteith that will respond. He says, The wood of Burnham. As if it could be anywhere else. Now Malcolm has an idea. He commands, Let every soldier hew him down a bough and bear it before him. Thereby shall we shadow the numbers of our host and make discovery err in report of us. Every soldier is to cut a branch from one of the trees in the wood and carry it upright in front of him. 
Malcolm's strategy is that this way they can conceal or shadow just how many soldiers they have in this army and ensure that any report of their numbers will be wrong. Thereby shall we shadow the numbers of our host and make discovery err in report of us. Obviously, this is very exciting for us in the audience, since unlike Malcolm, we are aware that Macbeth's fiery confidence has relied on the prophecy that he will be safe until Burnham Wood comes to High Dunsinane. A fairly basic, analogue military strategy is now going to make it look as though the wood is indeed marching, which raises the stakes very high indeed. The soldiers speak as one in response to Malcolm's order, saying, It shall be done. Seward now continues the strategic conversation. We learn no other, but the confident tyrant keeps still in Dunsinane, and will endure our setting down before it. All that they've heard is that the confident tyrant, Macbeth, in all his deluded, witch-betrayed confusion, is staying inside the castle at Dunsinane. He obviously believes that he can't be conquered, so, as Seward puts it, he will endure, or not resist, their marching towards it, and even setting up their camp before it. Macbeth must be very confident indeed if he's not alarmed by such a large army setting down in his front garden. Now Malcolm gives his insight into how Macbeth is feeling. Tis his main hope. From where there is advantage to be given, both more and less have given him the revolt, and none serve with him but constrained things whose hearts are absent too. Macbeth is relying on the advantage of his castle walls against an army positioned outside them. This is his main hope. The castle fortifications are pretty much all he has, for, as Malcolm tells us, whenever anyone has had the opportunity, or the advantage has been given, they have revolted and abandoned Macbeth. Everyone, high or low status, more and less, as the prince puts it, all of them are leaving and none of those who are left are happy about it. They are constrained, they have no choice, and their hearts aren't in it, or with Macbeth. Their hearts are absent. Both more and less have given him the revolt, and none serve with him but constrained things whose hearts are absent too. Now, before Malcolm gets too excited at all of this, Macduff weighs in. He says... Let our just censures attend the true event, and put we on industrious soldiership. He's saying that they should wait to evaluate all this until the true event, the final defeat. That's when they can make their just censures and find out who's fighting for whom. But for now, he's eager for them to put on industrious soldiership. It's time to get busy and fight. Now old Seward has the last word. The time approaches that will, with due decision, make us know what we shall say we have and what we owe. Thought speculative, their unsure hopes relate, but certain issue strokes must arbitrate, towards which advance the war. Seward gets not one but two rhyming couplets, as if to draw two lines under the scene as we conclude it. 
He speaks in something like that overblown, courtly, formal language we heard between Lady Macbeth and Duncan and at several other points later in the play. His point is that the time is coming when they'll be able to weigh up all these things and pay their debts. What we shall say we have and what we owe. And if that felt a little too cryptic, he seems to moderate himself, suggesting that while some speculative thoughts can articulate our hopes of an outcome, they're now facing a fight that can only be resolved with violence. They have to fight, and it's the strokes of their swords that will determine or arbitrate the outcome. Thoughts speculative, their unsure hopes relate, but certain issues strokes must arbitrate. And so he concludes, towards which advance the war. Bring it on, he's saying. And they all exit, marching. Amazingly, we have only five more scenes, and they're so short that they'll take up only seven more episodes in total. For the sake of future listeners who aren't following in real time, I will keep the scenes all separate, but since I would really love to finish our journey on New Year's Eve, you can expect to get a few double episode Sundays in December. Of course, they aren't going anywhere, so as always I encourage you to listen to the episodes at your own pace and enjoy this tremendously exciting play. I'm very grateful for your support and your messages and the lovely coffees some of you are kind enough to send. And I'll be back next time for Act 5, Scene 5. I hope you'll join me then.